0: Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable Podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events, as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio.
1: Now would you please rise with me as we worship the Triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. He
0: also hears their cry and saves them.
1: The responsive reading this morning is from Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy.
0: For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great King
1: over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet.
0: He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he
1: loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. For God is the King
0: of all the earth, sing praises with a song.
1: God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne.
0: For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted.
1: Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, the noblest thing we can do is to praise you without ceasing. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Nations rise and fall at your good pleasure. All your works praise you, and all your saints worship you. Let us be numbered with your holy ones. To sit eternally at the feet of Jesus and all the people belonging to God, say, Amen. Would you turn with me now to our first song of praise, number 408? A mighty fortress is our God. As I thought about the exhortation this morning that I would want to share with you all, I thought about uh, an occasion I had at the rescue mission and on. And I do I do make reference to that often. It is a point of reference for me, and it's one of the uh, it's a particular ministry that I was involved with uh, as a younger Christian. And so there was a lot of things that happened there that I saw. I could certainly see the hand of God in and upon as uh, went through the work there, working with the addicts and, and as well as the homeless. And on one particular occasion, uh, I had an encounter with a man whom, over the course of about a, about a week, I, I, would, I was observing him, and as he was going about his week and I was going about my week, I beckoned him to come and have a conversation with me. And the reason I did specifically and particularly with this gentleman was that I noticed that he seemed to be a bit a bit detached and certainly a lot more um, somber than he normally was. And whenever I would see him, and this isn't a massive, huge place, okay, uh, I would hold 40, 40 men. And as I would encounter him, I would make a point of greeting him and all that. And and his his response to that particular. Over those few days was a a very benign, how you doing? I'm doing okay. And it was about, that was about it. So I I called him into my office. I said, you know, I really want to talk to you. So come on, he came in, he sat down, and, and we always got along okay and got along well. And as he sat down with me, he disclosed that he was having and struggling mightily with an itch to go out and use. And in the, uh, in the language of addiction and drugs and all that, an itch to use means he was really, really craving the drug. And as our conversation progressed with that, I sat there listening to him, and I was, I was talking to him as well, but in the, in the, in the back of my mind and in, the, in my heart, I was praising God that this man would be so honest about how he felt. You know, a man in a residential treatment program admitting his desire to uh, return to behavior that was killing him may seem like a setback on some level. And praising Jesus as a man admits his urge to, to use may seem like a peculiar response from me. But let's think about this that virtually everyone in the grips of sin and addiction spends enormous time and energy in plotting ways to keep their bondage a secret. The fruit of this lifestyle is bitter. Relationships severed, relationships not pursued, isolation, separation, shame, guilt, anger, resentment, you name it, the list is a long one for those in bondage to sin, in bondage to addiction. So, you see, for this man to come in and confess his state of mind demonstrates a degree of trust that was absolutely absent in his life prior to coming and joining with us. Trusting others was previously viewed as an extreme dangerous thing to him and a a severe risk to him. So, as our conversation came, and I'm praising the Lord, and I'm thinking, thank you, God, that this man overcame many hesitancy any any reluctance to expose himself to describe a vulnerability that might might indicate a weakness or any of those things we talked about the grace of our lord we talked about the promises of god and that he would honor this man's faith and trust in him with the spirit to overcome hebrews 4 says for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We also talked about worthiness. In Matthew 5 it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We spoke of the steadfastness of God as in 1 Corinthians 1, it says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we spoke of the love that God has for us. But God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This disclosure and this discussion ended up being a time for confession, for reflection, for honesty, for commitment, encouragement, for exhortation, for praise and worship, for him, but equally for me. So it's in that spirit, it's in that spirit that I exhort you and and invite you and encourage you to move on to our period of confession within our service. So now as you are able, will you kneel with me as we confess our sins together? Pray with me out loud a corporate confession prior to a moment of silent personal confession. Let us pray aloud together. Heavenly Father, we gain in understanding the goodness of confession. The sin in our life weighs heavily upon us because you have quickened our spirit to be sensitive to it. And what great offense, even the slightest transgression, is to a righteous and holy God forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us we now confess to you our private sins during this time of silence please rise for the assurance of pardon the Lord and giver of life tells us in Proverbs 28 verse 13 whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy people of God you have humbled yourselves in faith now hear the good news and believe your sins are forgiven through Christ Let us joyfully sing the doxology
2: in response to this glorious news. I have two short passages for our sermon text this morning. The first is from Psalm 110. I'll just read verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And from Romans chapter 8. I'll read verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about you and about what you have done in history. We thank you for the ascension of Christ to your right hand. We pray that you would open our ears and our hearts as we ponder this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please be seated. Well, today is Ascension Sunday, which is a wonderful celebration in the church calendar. In uh, the Protestant tradition, we don't um, give particular attention to many uh, holidays or feast days during the, during the church year, and that's for good reason. The Roman Catholic Church uh, leading up to the Reformation uh, overdid, overdid things in celebrating different feast days and holy days for saints and so on. Uh, such that there was um, a particular celebration virtually every Sunday of the year and often throughout the week as well. And so one of the things that the Reformers did during the time of the Reformation was to do away with um, all of that, or almost all of that. But in Protestant tradition, we still celebrate five, uh, we we call them the five uh, church feast days. And those would be uh, Christmas, uh, the um, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension and Pentecost. So, Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. And these uh, we celebrate these uh, to give particular attention to the life of Christ and the things that uh, the events in redemptive history. And so, um, the Ascension took place forty days after uh, Easter, after the Lord was risen from the dead. Forty days is uh, later he ascended into heaven and the end of Luke uh, chapter 24 and the beginning of Acts tell of this, how Jesus ascended up into heaven on a cloud and the disciples watched him go. Um, So Ascension Day is actually this last Thursday. So 40 days after Easter is Ascension Day. But as the church, we celebrate the Ascension on the Sunday following Ascension Day. And so that's what we're going to be studying today. One other just brief comment. I think it's very fitting to give particular attention to these days in the church calendar year. But one of the things that I love about the way that your church or our churches in the CREC celebrate these things is that it doesn't look very much different from the regular Lord's Day. I think it's good for us to give particular attention to it in the texts that we read and the sermons that we give and the psalms that we sing. But it doesn't look very different from our regular Lord's Day worship, and that's a good thing. Because the Lord's Day is every week, and that is what we should be focusing on in terms of our, the rhythms of our week and our year. So just a side comment, uh, side comment there about um, the church calendar. But this is Ascension Sunday, and, and I do want to give particular attention to that. And this is what our sermon texts are about, and the sermon itself is focused on. The title for this sermon is The Power of the Ascension. In our day, the ascension of Jesus uh, has become one of the most neglected events in redemptive history. We're familiar, even in uh, churches that don't practice, uh, th- that don't follow the church calendar, that don't uh, maybe practice a higher church liturgy, we're all familiar with Christmas and Easter. Um, th- that's sort of the baseline for people that call themselves Christians. They may just be Christmas and Easter Christians, right? In our culture, we're very familiar with these, uh, with these days uh, that commemorate redemptive history. But the ascension is probably one that almost nobody remembers in our our day and age, in our culture, that nobody thinks about, that nobody gives attention to. And this is, I think, a little bit ironic because it really is, the ascension of Christ really is the culmination of his earthly ministry. The incarnation Christmas, what we celebrate at Christmas, the crucifixion, Good Friday, and the resurrection, Easter, all of these things are pointing ahead towards his ascension. They're actually all the lead up to the ascension. The ascension is the culminative event of Christ's earthly ministry. It was at his ascension that Jesus is set at the right hand of God. It's his coronation when Jesus ascends into heaven, what's going on there is he's going up to be in the throne room of God the Father where he is crowned as king of kings. He's named king of kings in heaven and on earth. This is what Jesus says of himself in, at the end of Matthew 28. He says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. This happens then at his ascension when he is crowned as this great king. The ascension is both the completion of his redemptive work. It's sort of the the stamp and the end of his redemptive work and the kickoff of the gospel takeover of the world. There's two texts that I want to look at just briefly here with you. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We may be doing a lot of Bible flipping, a lot of sword drills, as my grammar school teachers used to call them. Um, So have your Bibles handy and, and get your fingers nimble. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 12 and 13. So this is, uh, the author of Hebrews here is comparing what Christ did as the great high priest to what the priests in the old covenant did. So verse 12, this man, after he had suffered one sacrifice of sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. So, the ascension, when Jesus ascends to the right hand of God and sits down, that act of him sitting down is, is Jesus saying, My, the redemptive work that I am doing is complete. I have finished it. Now, obviously, there's more to be done in the course of history as God continues to redeem people and as God continues to bring all things together in Christ. But as far as what Christ has done for that, he sits down at the right hand of the Father saying, It's done. This act of sitting down is a, is a sign of his completion. And this is as opposed to the, um, the, what the old covenant priests would do. So if you look at verse 11, it says that this, this is what the priest would normally do. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So this is what the priest would do. They would offer the same sacrifices every day, and they would always be standing in the temple. But Jesus offered a sacrifice once for all sin and then sat down at the right hand of God. This is the point that this text is making. He sits down and in sitting down at the right hand of God, he's saying it is complete. So the ascension is the completion of his redemptive work. But that's not all. Look now at Acts chapter 1, which we read in the, during the scripture reading earlier. Acts chapter 1, the, the disciples are asking Jesus, Lord, when, w- will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus basically says to them, it's not none of your business. Don't worry about what I'm doing with Israel right now. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. God's going to work th- these things out in his own time. But here's what you need to focus on, disciples. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So go to Jerusalem, he says. Begin in Jerusalem and be, what, be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then go outside of Ju- Jerusalem to the region of Judea. And then go up north past Judea into Samaria. Just the, those people that are considered half Jews. Go, start going and preaching to them also. And then go beyond that into all the ends of the earth. And this is what Jesus says right before then he is taken up into heaven, verse 9 and 10. So the ascension then is the completion of Christ's redemptive work. But not only this, it's the kickoff for the gospel takeover of the world. This is what happens right before Jesus then sends his disciples out to take over the world. Now this pattern of ascension and advancement of the kingdom of Christ, I think is typified in the Old Testament. I think we see examples of this actually in the Old Testament. We're familiar with stories that talk about with stories of the Old Testament that point ahead to the crucifixion of Christ or the resurrection of Christ. We see these types in the Old Testament over and over again. Um, Just as one example, we're familiar with in Genesis when we're told that um, when when Adam and Eve are told that there will be uh, a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. We, we understand that to typify when Jesus comes and he's crucified on the cross and in his resurrection, he crushes the head of the serpent. Well, we're f- familiar with other stories that point ahead to that, that, that look like that, like David and Goliath, right? David, this righteous man who stands up, who's King David. And we know the story. The son of David is going to do the same thing one day. But King David, before he's king, he stands up and he fights Goliath, this great giant serpent almost, right? And what does he do? He strikes him in the head. And crushes his head. We're familiar with these kinds of types through the Old Testament. But there's also, I think, these examples or things that point ahead to the ascension and what the ascension does. So that's what I would like to focus on this morning. We're going to look at three different stories, three different types of ascension in the Old Testament. And see how they connect to what Christ did and and why that matters. Uh, We're going to look at the stories of Joseph and Moses and Elijah. In these types, and as we look at these things, what I what I hope that you will see is that Jesus' ascension, when Jesus ascends into heaven and is crowned King, this is tied to the fulfillment of the covenant promises that God gave to Abraham. What what Jesus is doing when he's ascending into heaven is tied to the promises that God gave to Abraham. And it's in fact a fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises. Those promises we can find in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, but I'm going to summarize them in just three, with three things. These promises that God gave to Abraham are that he would, <clears throat> his descendants would be an innumerable multitude. An innumerable multitude. Secondly, a promised land. And thirdly, that through Abraham would come blessings to all the nations. God says that I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all the nations. If these things are true, and if it's true that Jesus' ascension uh, is tied to these covenant promises, then his ascension actually has great implications for us today. The fact that Jesus ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father is, has huge implications for us currently as the church today. So first, let's look at these uh, stories. If you want to be flipping through and following along, you, you may. Um, I'm not going to, um, uh, I'm going to try to limit how much flipping I have you do, but we may, as I mentioned, we may be jumping around a bit. So first, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph begins in Genesis chapter 37. Um, Kids, as you're listening to this sermon, I want you to be paying attention because these stories are stories that you probably have heard or know, but I want you to be listening also and listening how do these stories, how are they similar to um, what happens to Jesus when Jesus is raised from the dead and then he ascends into power at the right hand of God and what does that mean? So pay attention to those things as we look at these stories that you're probably familiar with. So in the story of Joseph, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he is thought to be dead by his father and his brothers. They, they consider that he is dead. His brothers assume that he's been taken off into slavery and died somewhere. And his father, not knowing that he's been sold into slavery, um, is convinced by his brothers that he has been killed by some wild animal. So this is, in one sense, a death of Joseph. It, it turns out that he didn't actually die, but there's a type of his death here. Through his apparent death, and then God's raising him out of bondage, Joseph brings great deliverance to his family, the family of Israel. And so Joseph has, is sent into slavery. He is sent uh, uh, into a, uh, the, uh, Potiphar's house. Uh, the uh, captain of the guard takes him from the slave market, sets him up as a ruler in his own house. And then through the story of uh, what happens with Potiphar's wife, Joseph is cast into prison. He's cast back down to sort of another death. But then there's another resurrection. And we know the story of how, um, th- how Pharaoh has this dream, and he can't interpret the dream. And the, uh, the steward of Pharaoh's house remembers how he met Joseph in prison, and how Joseph was a man who could interpret dreams. And so he brings Joseph out of prison, brings him out of death in one sense. There's this resurrection Uh, this resurrection type where Joseph is brought out of prison and what happens? He interprets the dream for Pharaoh and Pharaoh establishes him as ruler over all of Egypt second only to himself. God raises Joseph from the dead and sets him up as the ruler over all of Egypt. We see this in Genesis chapter 41. Through this, not only is the house of Israel saved, right, there's this great famine in the land, and that's what one of the things that Pharaoh was dreaming about was this great famine that was going to come. And Joseph, through his interpretation, helps prepare uh, the land of Egypt so that they have food through the famine. So he saves Egypt. But not only that, uh, the, uh, Joseph's own family, the house of Israel, is saved because they come to Egypt to seek out uh, food and provisions because Egypt has them. But not only is this true, not only does, it, does Joseph save Israel, sort of like Jesus saves his people, but, it be, but um, Egypt becomes a dwelling place in which, they, uh, in which the Israelites grow, and Scripture tells us that they eventually become exceedingly mighty. You see this in Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus chapter 1, we're told that there was, um, after the death of Moses, the children of Israel grow and they grow and they grow, Verse 7 says, The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. Do you get the point? Listen to that again. This is God's emphasis here. The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. This is a powerhouse people. right? That's That's what God's saying right here. Why does this happen? Well, it happens because Joseph was brought from the dead in a sense and ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh where he then provided salvation for his family, provided, uh, saved them from the famine and gave them a place to grow and to multiply. But not only this, due to, um, uh, through, um, they become so powerful that what does the next Pharaoh think he needs to do? They become so, so powerful that the next Pharaoh is threatened by them. So he decides he needs to start killing them off. And thus we, have, we go into the story of Moses where Pharaoh is killing all of the infant male children. So through Joseph's ascension to power as supreme ruler, the small band of Israelites become a great nation. Um, one other thing to look at here that I think stands out in Genesis chapter forty-one, at the conclusion of this story, where Israel, uh, where Jacob and his house—or um, sorry, before Jacob comes to Egypt—but when Joseph is given power and he's providing uh, food for all of the for all of Egypt, look at, at the very end of chapter forty-one, verse fifty-six. The famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So Joseph provided for Egypt. But then verse 57, all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. Uh, the, The word there can also be translated just as all the earth. The famine was severe in all the earth. So all countries from all the earth come to Joseph. Come to seek him and seek uh, help from him. There are several parallels, I think, to Jesus' ascension that we see here. First, Joseph was appointed as supreme ruler in Egypt, and Jesus in his ascension is crowned as king over all people, and he has been given the name above every name. Psalm 110 that we read at the beginning of the sermon uh, prophesies about this. David writes, The Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand, come and sit and be seated and throned as king until all of the earth is set down under your feet. Uh, Matthew 28, again, which I uh, referenced earlier, Jesus says that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then in Philippians chapter 2, which we'll come back to later, uh, there's this great passage where Paul uh, describes how at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. All nations are going to come and bow before him. This is what has happened to Christ at his ascension. Again, we see a type of this in Joseph being set up as this supreme ruler where all countries are coming to him to seek him. Through Joseph's rise, Israel becomes a mighty people. Through Joseph's rise to power, Israel becomes a mighty people. And Jesus tells his disciples that it is better for him to go to ascend so that they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples, it's better in John 16, it's better for me to go, for me to depart from you, so that then the Holy Spirit will come in power. And what does the Spirit do? In his coming, Jesus says that the Spirit convicts the world, and it is by this Spirit that Jesus' disciples and followers, since that time, are empowered to grow. How many Christians are there in the world today? In numbers in the billions, right? Why? Why? Because the Holy Spirit has been at work taking the gospel through the church to all nations. To all nations. The church, and it's funny to say this sometimes in our situation, because we feel like in America the church is absolutely impotent at times. right? And that's often very true. But speaking in terms of history and in terms of looking at the whole world, the church has just blossomed. And and the gospel is going forth in all corners of the world like never before. This is because, um, and and all this started at the ascension of Christ. That's when it started. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and you're going to um, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the world. And we see this connected to God's promises to Abraham. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be an innumerable multitude. And Paul tells us that those who are the sons of Abraham are not sons of Abraham by being of the blood of Abraham, but by the faith of Abraham. Abraham's children are becoming increasingly an innumerable multitude. We see a reference to this again in Revelation 7, when John sees a vision, he sees the 144,000 praising God, and then he hears a voice behind him, and he turns and he looks, and he sees an innumerable multitude. Of all tribes and tongues and nations, praising God, an innumerable multitude. Well, where does that come from? That's, that's the fulfillment, or the beginning of the fulfillment, of God's promise to Abraham. But it starts at Jesus' ascension. Okay, so that's the story of Joseph. Let's talk about Moses. Moses is another, gives another type, I think, of this ascension uh, imagery. We're familiar with who Moses is. He's the the prophet that God raises up in order to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. God raises up this prophet Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. After they've crossed the Red Sea, they spend about 40 years in the wilderness. And at the end of that time, Moses then commissions his people right as they're about to enter into the promised land. The book of Deuteronomy is basically um, a, a series of sermons that Moses gives to the Israelites right before they're about to go into the promised land. Uh, It's called Deuteronomy because it's a repetition of the law of God, but included in that are a series of of exhortations and sermons that Moses gives to the people as, as they're right on the cusp of going into the land of Canaan. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. They're about to go into the land of Canaan, and so Moses has some things to tell them. At the very end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 34, this would be one that you should turn to here so you can see this. Deuteronomy chapter 34. We have recorded here the death of Moses. We're told that Moses goes up into Mount Nebo, verse 1. There God shows him all of the land of Canaan that is going to be the inheritance of Israel. But God had told Moses previously that um, though Moses would see it, he would not go into the land of Canaan. And so then, verse 5, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, that is God, buried him. So God buried Moses in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses goes up into a high mountain, dies, and God buries him in a place where nobody knows. It's kind of almost as though he ascended. Almost as though he ascended and God took him. We know that God tells us that his body actually was buried here on earth. But there's this imagery of Moses going up up this mountain and then he's gone. This is Moses' ascension. But before Moses dies, uh, look at verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that something that Moses did before he died. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Joshua was the one that was going to lead the people into the land of Canaan after Moses dies. And it says here that he was full of the spirit of wisdom. Why? Why was he full of the spirit of wisdom? Because Moses had laid his hands on him. Moses placed a blessing upon Joshua and gave him a spirit of wisdom. God, through Moses, gives him a spirit of wisdom so that he can lead the people. This is not insignificant. And then, in uh, if you turn the page to Joshua chapter 1, Verse 2, God gives a commission to Joshua. So Moses has got ascended into heaven. He's given a commission to the people of Israel, the book of Deuteronomy, lots of sermons, exhortations about going into the land. He ascends Mount Nebo. He dies. Joshua, filled with the spirit of wisdom, is about to lead the people into the land of Canaan. And uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving you. To the land which I am giving to them, to the children of Israel. So God commissions Joshua to lead the people into the land, and he tells him then in verse 5 that God will never leave him. God tells Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. We hear hear this over and over in this passage. Okay, so what do we see here? Joshua leads the people of Israel into their promised land in Canaan. And all of this, I think, again, is a type of the ascension and what happens after the ascension. Jesus, having delivered his people from their sins, like Moses led the people out of Egypt, Jesus spends 40 days with his followers. I mentioned at the beginning, the ascension, ascension day is 40 days after the resurrection, like Moses led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. At the end of this time, Jesus commissions his people to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. And he, t- and he tells them to, light, um, to go and declare that, um, that he is king over all things and to teach them everything I've commanded you. Go conquer the land that I'm giving you, like God told Joshua. And Jesus declares to his disciples... Um, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just like God said to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We see all of these parallels here. So what do we, what do we understand from this? Just like Joshua led the people into the promised land of Canaan, so Jesus leads us or, or sends us by the power of the Holy Spirit into the land that has been promised to his people. What is this land? The, the new land is the world. The, new, the land for God's people is no longer just the land of Canaan. It's much, much bigger than that. It's all of the world. Because Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go into all of the world and tell them all that I'm king. Go and tell them all to follow me. Go and take my gospel all to all places. This is the new land, the new inheritance for the new Israel. Jesus then ascends into heaven and the Spirit descends, empowering the disciples. This spirit of wisdom. In Ephesians, which we've been studying through normally when I come down, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays for the uh, Ephesian churches that God would give them, so look at, if you're flipping to it, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. This is in the middle of Paul's prayer here. He prays that God, the Father of glory, would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He prays that God would give to his people a, this spirit of wisdom, the same spirit of wisdom that God gave to Joshua when Moses laid hands on him. It's the spirit of wisdom that God gives to his people for the purpose of going out and doing what Jesus began. Well, how do we know this? We'll look further on in chapter 1 here. In Ephesians. Paul wants them to know that what is the exceeding greatness, verse 19, the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of His almighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. The spirit of wisdom is, is a spirit of knowledge about the power of God when he raises Jesus from the dead and sits him at his right hand, his ascension. For what purpose? Well, he, was, he sat at his right hand far above all principality and power and all might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And so with knowledge of that, knowledge of what God has done for Christ, set him up over all the kingdoms of the earth, set him up as king of kings and lord of lords, with that knowledge, with that spirit of wisdom, God's people are to go into the land. We're to go and take the land, like the Israelites went to take the land of Canaan, except this time we wield the sword of the spirit. We go and we take over the world by the means of the gospel. And so we see, as with Moses, Jesus' ascension kicks off and empowers the advance of God's people into the promised land. Just like Moses ascends up the mountain and he disappears, Jesus ascends into heaven. His disciples can't see him anymore, but they're empowered to then go and disciple the nations. Okay. Uh, so f- focus with uh, Moses is this, this blessing of the land, that, this promised land that God is giving to his people. And with the ascension of Jesus, we see the beginning of this takeover of the land. Let's talk about Elijah now. Uh, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 2. We're looking at the end of Elijah's ministry. Elijah is most well known for his standoff his throwdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember the story of how Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a showdown on the top of this mountain. They set up two altars. They're supposed to both prepare the altars and call, down, call upon their gods to bring down fire to light the altars. The prophets of Baal go, um, go crazy and, uh, and for hours and hours and hours are dancing around um, in this crazy worship, cutting themselves, um, calling upon Baal, and, and Elijah just simply mocks them as they're doing this. And then, when they're done, they're all exhausted and they, and they give up, Elijah pours water on his altar, makes it even more impossible for it to be lit, calls upon the name of Yahweh, and God answers with fire immediately. Well, at the end of his ministry, that, that's probably the most well-known story about Elijah, but at the end of his life, We're also told in in 2 Kings chapter 2 that Elijah ascends into heaven. Elijah is one of the few people in the history of the world that we know of that never physically died. Uh, There's one in Genesis that we're told of, Enoch, uh, walked with God and then God took him. Presumably he didn't physically die. But Elijah is is one of the others. Elijah, uh, the only one that I can think of, the only other one that I can think of. Elijah is caught up in a fiery chariot in a whirlwind, and, he, and God takes him up into heaven. We see this in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11. Then it happened as they, that's Elijah and his companion or servant Elisha, as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Then Elisha goes back, to, back across the Jordan, and he meets there, this school of the prophets, probably these, sort of like a seminary. And the prophets then say, well, let's go find the body of Elijah. And Elisha tells them, you're not going to find it. But they say, no, let's go look for it. He says, okay, fine. So they go, and they look for him for, I think it's three days, and they can't find him anywhere. They can't find his body. He was taken up into heaven. Interestingly, right before this, right, as, uh, right before Elijah is taken up, Elisha makes a particular request. Look at uh, verse 9 in chapter 2. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what, I, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, Please let me have a double portion of your spirit, or please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And Elijah says, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Well, Elisha does see Elijah ascended into heaven in the chariot or with the whirlwind. And he is given this double portion of his spirit. Uh, when When Elisha goes back over the Jordan and he talks with these prophets, the sons of the prophets, in verse um, Fifteen. It says that when they see him, they say the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. What, Elijah, what Elisha had asked for was given to him. Okay, so what do we have going on here? Elijah ascends up into heaven and the spirit of Elijah is given to Elisha. Similar to Moses laying his hands on Joshua and Moses ascends Mount Nebo and the spirit of wisdom comes upon Joshua. And what does Elisha do? Well, uh, what Elijah was doing in his ministry was fighting against the prophets of Baal. He was fighting against idolatry in Israel. Elisha—they uh, cross over. The, the the movement here is is significant. They're in Israel. They cross over the Jordan to outside or to the other side of the Jordan, which is still part of Israel, but kind of out on the outskirts of Israel. And that's where Elisha, or sorry, Elijah, ascends into heaven. And then Elisha enters back into the land of Canaan. Well, we used to be the land of Canaan. Enters back into Israel, which in some ways has become like a new Canaan because of all of the idolatry. Right? They're worshiping the gods of Canaan. So he goes back across the Jordan to do what? To go and continue fighting against the idolatry in Israel. Just like Joshua had crossed back over the Jordan River to go into the land of Canaan. Elisha is another Joshua but it gets even better. One of the first things that happens in Elisha's ministry, early on in his ministry, uh, we have this story in 2 Kings 5, where Elisha is approached by a man named Naaman. Naaman is a Syrian, and he is the assistant to the king of uh, Syria. And so the king of Syria um, is an enemy of Israel, And Naaman is the commander of his army or his assistant. And Naaman comes to Elisha because he's a leper. And there's nobody in Syria that can heal him of his leprosy. He finds out about this prophet in Israel who's worked all these miracles. And so Naaman goes to visit Elisha. Uh, Important to remember that um, the, the people of Israel... Um, despised, generally speaking, those that were not of the blood of Israel. They were Gentiles. They were dirty. You don't mix with them. You you keep them at a distance. Um, But this Syrian, this Gentile, comes to Elisha. And Elisha welcomes him and tells him to go and, in order to be cleansed, go and wash himself in the River Jordan seven times. And Naaman just scoffs at the idea. He says, Isn't, aren't there rivers in Syria that are even better than the River Jordan? This river is so dirty. Why would I go and wash there and not in the rivers of my homeland? And uh, as a side note here, his servant gives him a wonderful rebuke. Um, if you're looking at it, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 13. This is a great little uh, rebuke here with regards to obedience, obeying God, obeying God's words. Uh, Verse 14, uh, he's talking about how uh, Elisha told him to go and uh, uh, wash in the river and, and, and how this is ridiculous and couldn't he just wave his hand and make it go away or why don't I go and wash in the rivers of my homeland? Verse 12, could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. And then his servants came near and they spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? Right? This is a great man, a powerful man, a brave, courageous leader of an army, of the army of Syria, one of the powerful nations in this time. And his servants say, look, if, if the prophet had asked you to go and do something great, like go on a great quest, go and accomplish some big task, wouldn't you have just jumped at that opportunity? And then he says, how, how much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? You would do it if it's something great, but because it's something that seems very demeaning, you're despising this. You're not going after it. And just uh, what a wonderful rebuke for us. Um, I forget the name of the author, but there's somebody who likes to say, everybody wants to save the world, but nobody wants to help mom with the dishes. Right? Everybody wants to obey God in such a way that I'm going to save the world, but uh, you ask me to do the dishes? Nah. Right? We want to obey in great and grand ways, but we won't obey in the little things. That one's for free. That's was total, total sidetrack from the main point of what I'm trying to get at here. But probably that's the one thing you'll remember now. So. Okay, but no, this is important. Uh, Naaman goes and he dips in the Jordan River seven times and he is cleansed. Okay, he's healed. He asks Elisha then, can I give you something, some sort of payment for this? And Elisha says, no, this is a free gift. And so he sends Naaman back home. Now, Elisha had a servant named Gehazi. And um, it's very striking that Gehazi is offended at Elisha's grace to Naaman. Look at verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman, this Syrian. You could just hear Gehazi kind of spitting that. This Syrian. He spared him while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So then Gehazi pursues Naaman, and he lies to Naaman and says, Look, my master actually would like a little something. And he takes from him some silver and some clothing and some other things. And then he goes back to Elisha. And before he gets to Elisha, Elisha knows what he has done. Verse 25. Elisha said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. And Elisha said, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. Okay, so what's going on here? Why is... Why am I saying that this is an important type when we're talking about the ascension of Christ? Well, you have Elisha. You have Elijah ascending into heaven. Upon Elisha comes the spirit of prophecy, or the the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of the prophet. Elisha goes back into the land to do battle with the idols, and there he brings a blessing of free grace to a Gentile. And his servant despises that, hates that. Seeks to take from this Gentile, to require something from this Gentile. And what what happens to this Israelite who despises the grace of God upon the Gentile? He's cursed. And leprosy comes upon him. He's made unclean forever. Like Elisha. The disciples of Jesus are empowered by the Spirit of God as they watch Jesus ascend, or soon after they watch Jesus ascend. And because he ascended, his apostles are given the Holy Spirit, and they're told to go and cleanse the world. They're told to go and do battle against idolatry, teach the world everything that Jesus taught them, baptize the nations, And so they do. They go and they take the blessing of Jesus and the gospel, not just to Jerusalem and Judea, but also to Samaria and the ends of the earth, to all nations, including the Gentiles. And the earliest controversies in the church had to do with the gospel and the grace of God going to the Gentiles. Can can the Gentiles really be saved? Can the Gentiles really be given this free gift and be brought near to God? And the New Testament is emphatic about this. Absolutely. And it is free. There's no cost. There's no cost in terms of being made part of God's family. You don't have to follow the Mosaic law in order to be part of God's family anymore. But just like Gehazi, the Jews in the days of the apostles hated this grace. They hated this grace that was going out to the Gentiles. And because of this, God cursed them. God brought a final judgment upon Israel when he destroyed the temple in 70 AD as Jesus had said he would. I hope you can see the parallels here. The Spirit comes upon Elisha. He returns into the land. He goes and and he's preaching the gospel. He's preaching faithfulness to Yahweh. And he heals this Gentile. And and not only that, I forgot to include this. Naaman is converted. He's not only healed, he's converted. And he worships Yahweh, this Syrian, this enemy of God's people. And Gehazi despises that grace. And because of that, Gehazi is himself cursed. But if Jesus really did pay it all, and if he has ascended, and if he has sat down completing that work at the right hand of the Father, then there is no additional payment needed for the forgiveness of our sins. Gehazi was wrong. The Jews were wrong. There is nothing else needed because Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. He completed his work of redemption. So Joseph and Moses and Elijah, we've got these three stories all with these types of ascension and what happens when the ascension takes place. God's God's people go out in power and they grow up to an innumerable multitude. God's people go and they take the promised land. God's people go and become a blessing to all nations. Jesus has ascended. This is what we're celebrating on Ascension Sunday. He has ascended and he intercedes For us right now with the Father. Jesus is with God the Father right now. Interceding with him on your behalf. Right now as we speak. And all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And it is then on this basis that you are commissioned to advance the kingdom of God. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and baptize all the nations. Teaching them everything I have commanded you. But this advance of the kingdom begins first in your own hearts. That there's actually, as we close here, there's actually a very practical application here. Turn to one last passage with me. Philippians chapter 2. Paul is speaking of how Jesus humbled himself in the incarnation took on the likeness of mankind, became obedient to the point of death. And then verse 9, chapter, Philippians chapter 2 verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him. So Jesus descended to earth, then descended into the grave in his death and burial, and then now God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But then what is Paul's application of this? What is Paul's application of this? He gives this great statement of God's, of Christ's power and his authority, how his name is exalted. What does he say about it? Verse 12, Therefore, Because of this, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. What does it mean that Jesus is king? It means that Jesus is king over all the world and that the gospel is going to take over the world, and he wins. Jesus wins. It's over. But it also means that you have work to do as his disciples, as his emissaries into the world. But that work begins in your own heart. Because Jesus has been highly exalted and given the name above every name, and because every knee is going to bow to him, therefore work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Before we as a church decide we're going to go and we're going we're gonna to evangelize, we're going to tell people about Christ, we're going to go out and preach the gospel to everyone, you have to follow Christ first. Amen. And this is a daily thing. This is a daily commitment to follow Jesus, to follow him with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's in this context that we remember also what Paul says. Who is he that condemns? Who is he that condemns you? It is Christ who died. And furthermore also is risen who is even at the right hand of God. He has ascended. And because of this, you know that he makes intercession for you. And therefore there is no condemnation for you because Jesus ascended. Because he sits at the right hand of God. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul's answer, of course, is nothing. And so Jesus is King. This is the foundation of of which from which you go and do everything. Jesus is King, so love the nations. Give grace and forgiveness freely, beginning with those people in the row next to you. Because Jesus is king, you forgive your brother. Because Jesus is king, you forgive your sister and your husband and your wife and your kids and your parents. Because Jesus is king. Because Jesus is king, you go and you spread the gospel without fear. Having first spread the gospel to yourself, preach the gospel to yourself, confess your sins yourself. Because Jesus is king, you count yourself dead to your sin. That sin that so easily ensnares you, you count yourself dead to it, not because you're a good person, not because you're going to try harder and do better, but because Jesus is king. So you abandon that. You count it dead to you. You, do, you make no provision for your flesh because Jesus is king. I think we have a wonderful picture here in our sanctification, right? What, what happens when we sin? We sin. We confess our sins. We, we appeal to the blood of Jesus, his death. We appeal to his resurrection because we've been raised with him. And then what does God do? He forgives us. And that's our sanctification. What is Sanctification. It's the path of from you going from being justified in Christ to your glorification. It's your ascension. Every time God forgives you, you're ascending, ascending a little more, ascending a little more, going out in the power of the Spirit to work more in spreading the gospel in your own heart and in the whole world. Every time God forgives you, you get a taste of the power that has been given to Jesus that he has then given to you as you continue to fight your sin. Jesus is king so feed the hungry. Jesus is king, so clothe the naked. Jesus is king, so disciple and discipline your children. Jesus is king, so eat and drink joyfully to his glory in everything that you do. Jesus is king, and the world is his, and so the world is yours. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you. God, we thank you for Jesus for his death, for his burial, for his resurrection. And Father, we thank you for his ascension. We have no power. We we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit if Jesus has not ascended. But he has ascended. And he sits at your right hand right now, interceding for us, as we pray to you and as we worship you this morning. So Father, help us to rest in that grace, to rest in that truth, and therefore to go into this week that you have ahead for us to the works that you've called us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In John 16, before Jesus departed uh, in the crucifixion and then his ascension, Jesus told his disciples that it would actually be better for them that he depart, which is crazy for us to think about. We, We often think, wouldn't it be better for us to be with Jesus now to, to, to live in the disciples day where we could see Jesus and touch him and hear him. Wouldn't that be better? Well, Jesus said, no, it wouldn't actually. It'd be better for him to depart. And the reason for this is because then he would send them the Holy Spirit. So Jesus departs, but he also tells his disciples that he's going to be with them always. One aspect of this, I think, is his presence with the church in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, in communion. Jesus said of the bread, this is my body, and he said of the wine, this is my blood. Now, we deny the Roman Catholic teaching that the bread and the wine unnaturally turn into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. We deny that. The bread and the wine here are signs that point to a greater reality. But Jesus' words indicate to us at the same time that these signs represent not an absent reality, but a present reality. So these signs are not pointing away to something that's far off, but they're actually pointing to something that's very near. Because Jesus said, I am with you always. Jesus really is here and present with us. How can this be? Because he has a body and he's ascended to the right hand of God. I can't see him. I can't touch him. But he said he's here. Jesus really is here. He is really present with us. And in the worship service, one of the things that we, I think scripture indicates is that we come to the throne room of God. We come before God. We actually ascend with all the church on the Lord's day to the throne room of God. So we come up to heaven every Sunday. And that is where Jesus is seated. Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of God. And where are you as you worship God? You're before his throne. Well, how is this possible? It was possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's possible because Jesus ascended and sent his Holy Spirit. Here we are, and here Christ is. And this is his body, and this is his blood. And this is all possible because of the Holy Spirit, which knits us together with him and with one another. Uh, When we we think and we speak about and we read or we hear teaching on the Lord's Supper, it's often um, confusing and it's often, or seems confusing, and it's often thick. It's rich. It's heavy. It is a mystery, but it is a mystery that we grow up into a little more every time we come to this table by faith. And so come, and by faith, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. So the charge is twofold. Remember Jesus' ascension, because it it should mean two things for you as you got into this week. First, your redemption is complete. It's done. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and so therefore, nothing can separate you from him. He's, He's with God. He sat down with the Father. If your faith is in Christ, nothing can separate you from him. Secondly, if he has ascended... That means he sat down and he's been crowned king, and that means he's won. So go and walk in that victory. And hear the benediction from your Lord. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.